So if this is one of your first times with us today, the answer is yes. Brad always wears a suit every week. In fact, since this is a special occasion, I think I'm going to take the jacket off, if that's okay. Um, and Brad always tells the truth. Um, there's a funny thing that happened in, uh, or is happening around the office these days. Um, since I announced that I'm transitioning out of the role of senior pastor here at Mosaic, some of my activities have begun to be labeled in a certain way. And the adjective that's being used is the word last, as in Brad's last Good Friday service or Brad's last Easter. Now, of course, I'm not dying. <laughs> so I plan to still fully participate in many, 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 many more Easter services before it's all said and done. Uh, but noticing this little trend got me thinking. This is my 15th Easter sermon in a row. And I haven't even gotten tired of it yet. Now, can, can I just share a little secret, though? And you can't tell anyone outside of this room. And don't tell anyone to go to our website and listen to this talk. You promise? I'm kind of getting tired of Mary Joseph and the angels. <laughs> After 14 Advents, which are four weeks long, uh, it's getting, I'd say it's getting old. Because it's not. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. The incarnation's amazing miracle. I'm all about it. Hypostatic union, look it up. Amazing thing. I'm all about that. But it's kind of hard to come up with things to say about very similar stories 14 years in a row. But with the resurrection, I've never had that problem. I'm not taking anything away from the incarnation. It's a miracle. It uh, blows my mind. When I really connect to that idea, it, it changes my life. I'm not downgrading it all. But there are stories in the rest of the world uh, about godly beings becoming human. It's not the same as Jesus, but it's out there. What I found is with the resurrection... It's something profound and unique. It's a real difference maker. It's a game changer. And the resurrection, it's a hinge. And that's the one theology, the one understanding, the one experience that I, I can't live without. Paul, in writing about the resurrection to some of the early Christians, famously said that if there's no resurrection, Christians are to be pitied above all people. And so today, in my last Easter sermon, <laughs> I want to leave you with what I found to be the most important aspects, theologies, meanings, truths that the resurrection delivers into our world. Now, for my money, these are the four facets that shine most brightly about the resurrection. And so with my last chance to preach on Easter, I want to leave you with those. But I fully recognize that the resurrection of Jesus is very much like a diamond. There are hundreds of facets. 
And these aren't the only facets. But if you're going to remember anything about the resurrection, these are the four things I would really like to leave with you. What are they? Well, first, the resurrection means I can trust God. And for me, it means I have peace. After Jesus' resurrection, one of the authors of uh, the biblical stories of his life, John, reports this. He says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And one thing I've always found very interesting is that when the resurrected Jesus appeared to people, they didn't know what to think at first. Sometimes they didn't even recognize him, except for one thing, his scars. It says he showed them his hands and his side. Jesus' perfect resurrected body was scarred. And what I want to suggest is that this idea, the idea of a God with scars, is the most helpful, life-changing idea that has ever existed. One that, if you get a hold of it, can radically transform your life like no other idea or religion or philosophy on this planet. It matters. A God with scars matters because a God that has been wounded is a God you can trust. A God that's been wounded is not a God on a power trip. It's a God who sacrifices. It's a God who gives, not one who takes. It's a God we can listen to because he's proven that he is for us. And he carries that proof in his very being. He could never forget. To trust someone, you have to believe, I think, in two things. The purity of their intentions and their veracity and ability to follow through on those intentions. You know, as a people, we're cynical, and rightly so. You know, we expect that people, as nice and as caring as they seem to be, really just want to do their thing and will use us to that end. You are a means to an end. And when we're not cynical, we're skeptical. Good intentions are not enough. The road to hell famously is paved with good intentions. To trust someone, we need to know that they have the ability and the will to follow through. A God who sacrifices for you, for me, for us, is suddenly a God we can trust. And this, I think, is really the main message to you, whether you're skeptical or cynical. The message of the resurrection, scarred body of Jesus is that he's trustworthy. At the heart of both skepticism and cynicism is fear. Fear of being let down fear of being duped. And the only antidote for overreaching skepticism and cynicism, the only way to keep them from ruling your life is to find something 
or someone that you can trust. We can trust a God with scars because the scars of Jesus speak both of his intentions and his follow-through. His sincerity is proven. He's worthy of trust. Can you remember that? Next, the story is redemption. The story is redemption, and that means I have hope. John 16, says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. It's a promise. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You know, for years, every Easter morning, a group of my friends from Chicago would gather for an ironic celebration of Easter. And what was interesting to me is they were a collection of folks who grew up in conservative Christian homes, going to church, serving as leaders in youth groups, and they didn't mean any harm at all. It just felt burned. Now, every person has a different story. Every person in that group had a different story. But by and large, I noticed that they seemed to feel that they had been manipulated by faith and the churches of their youth. And they were taught, it seems, that they had that to be a good Christian. Oh, I'm sorry. They were taught what they had to do to be a good Christian and what the result would be if they did those things. So they set out to do those things. And they were expecting that if they did A and B, they would get C. But somewhere along the way, they didn't get C. Someone died. Maybe someone ended up divorced. Some other tragedy struck. And now when they look back at some of the things they sacrificed and some of the decisions they made, they felt like they sold a, a bill of goods. The story wasn't true. It was a sham. And in so many ways, this question of story is really actually just connected to what is famously called the problem of pain. Namely, how do we make sense of the pain and disappointments of our lives? If God is good and we do our best to follow him, surely we will be protected, blessed, and successful. Do our part and God will do the rest, right? And that's the story I think a lot of us, we actually, we want, we want that to be true. It's simple and straightforward, and it gives us control over our lives. We know what we have to do to get what we want. Unfortunately, it also sets us up for major disappointment and feelings of betrayal. It's a nice story, but it doesn't match the realities of life, does it? And more specifically, it doesn't line up with the stories we see in the Bible. The story of the Bible is that you can do everything right and end up on the cross. Have you ever heard me say that before? Been around for a little bit. You can do everything right and end up on a cross. That's what happened to Jesus. That's the story, the prototype. Now that's not a story that gets printed and put on bumper stickers. But it's true, nonetheless. It is true. Now hear me say this, that in general, God blesses righteousness and hinders evil. That's true. In general, most of the time, 
the vast majority of the time. But sometimes, in really profound ways, disappointing, even terrible things happen to everyone. And the hope of the Christian faith is not that faith will protect us from the disappointments, but rather that God will redeem the disappointments just as God raised Jesus from the dead and turned that tragedy into hope for the entire world. Death precedes resurrection. Failure precedes redemption. This is the story. This is the story. It's glorious and miraculous in the end. It's worth every sacrifice. That's what faith and hope is, but that's the story. And if you have latched on to any other perspective, please hear me say that in the end, that is only going to let you down or turn you into a weird person. <laughs> Doing mental, emotional, spiritual gymnastics to make something fit that doesn't fit with reality. <laughs> Tom is a weird person. Don't be like Tom. <laughs> the story is beautiful, it's powerful, it's amazing, but it's a story of redemption. Please never forget that. It's a story of redemption. That's what the resurrection is. It's evil being defeated by itself. Turning it on its ear, bringing something beautiful out of a horrible tragedy. Next, power works in and through my weakness. Power works in and through my weakness. And from that, again and again, experience grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. You know, a lot of you know that from time to time over the past several years, uh, I've run a group called Faith Reimagined. It's one of my favorite things. And it's a group that has provided space for people to work through their concerns with faith, particularly their concerns with the Christian faith. And it allows a space for people to do that in community. But before Faith Reimagined, I ran a lot of different groups uh, for people exploring faith. In one group, I was really encouraged when one of the participants, Steve, said, um, if I'm getting it, I remember, I'll never forget this. Says, if I'm getting it, it seems like the whole thing is about grace. And I was like, ding, 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 yes. And I went home feeling it was one of my best pastor days. I was like, people are getting it. This is awesome. It was so fun to see some light bulbs go off. And you can imagine how disappointing it was when just a few months later, I was talking to Steve. And he said, I'm not doing this anymore. Since I've started this process, I felt bad about myself all the time. I don't want that. Who would want that? If I was Steve, and I had that experience, I'd run the other way too. But I was surprised. How did this light bulb of grace, being the center of everything, 
get flipped into some sort of guilt and shame and killjoy. Well, sadly, it turned out that Steve had a girlfriend who broke up with him because he wasn't good enough at being a Christian. And I can only imagine how hard he was trying and how he must have felt like a failure. A lot of folks have had a similar experience. They may not have gotten dumped by their significant other, but they experience grace as a prelude or a lead-in to working really hard to please God and others. And as a result, they feel like they're failing because they are. If the charge is to be a good, achieving Christian, we all fail. And if we don't realize we're failing, then we fail because we have pride, right? So you're kind of stuck in this double bind that really just saps the joy out of life. That's no way to live. If this was the profound life of faith, I'd quit too. Ugh. I think what sometimes we don't realize is that this grace-first, work-later approach to faith isn't the only option. In fact, in light of the resurrection, an extreme display of God's power working through total weakness of Jesus in his death, I don't even think it's a Christian option. In addition to my role as senior pastor, I'm also a coach that works with young adults. And often I'll get Christian clients because, uh, you know, it's hard to get clients. And when they see you're also a pastor, it's easier to get those Christians. <laughs> so I'll work a lot with Christian clients. And at some point, the conversation always turns to this topic every single time so far. Who does God require me to be? And the performance requirements that people feel drive their stress levels through the roof and their self-perception into the ground. They feel terrible about themselves. And it's so easy to forget what Jesus said to the Christian superstar Paul of Tarsus at one of his lowest points. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What a fantastic reflection point, and what a better option through which to view yourself than through performance requirements. Through this lens, our failures are the opportunities for God's power to work perfectly in our lives. God doesn't reject us. Rather, he steps into the mess with us in order to bring something good out of it. This is the story. Remember, it's redemption, not prevention. And this is the experience that I need because I relate to Paul. At one point, Paul says, I don't do what I want to do, and what I want to do, I do not do. And maybe when I was 28, preaching my first Easter sermon, I didn't get that. But at 44, there's things I've been trying to change for all 15 years. I don't do what I want to do. And what I want to do, I don't do. And I'm at the point where I know I need grace simply for my life to work or to stay together or even have the possibility of being a great life. 
Because I know that what I have to offer is not enough. And the resurrection shows me that God's plan is to accomplish the best things in the world in my life, not by rewarding my good deeds, but by working through my darkest moments. That's grace. That's what I need. There's a lot of joy there. And lastly, the fourth thing, can you remember that? If you're ever feeling guilty, you've lost touch. If grace makes you feel guilty, if Jesus on the cross makes you feel guilty, you're missing something. It's not right. That's not the story. Take a step back. Tell somebody, why do I feel like such a terrible person? Why does following Jesus, heaven forbid, make me feel bad? Something's not in line. Number four, Jesus is different and true, and therefore I know love. Ephesians 1.10 says, uh, He made known to us the mystery of his will, speaking of God the Father, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And the key phrase there is to bring unity. And the idea here, and sometimes it's translation, translated as to sum up all things in Christ. It's this idea that Jesus is the summation of all things, the focal point of history, the difference maker. That in Jesus, everything's coming together. And for me, the three things I've already talked about today, they're all pointing to this. There really is something different Something different and true about Jesus. There's something different and something true. You know, a few years ago, church association, our church was affiliated with, had their semi-annual regional conference. And uh, I'd been to these for years and years, but this one was a different experience for me. In my whole life, I've been the guy who had to be in the front row at any church service or any church conference because I knew that the Holy Spirit was more present in the front row than anywhere else. And not only that, I was the guy, hands raised, clapping, kneeling, sometimes wailing. It's on tape, I've heard it. <laughs> that was me. That was... That was 28-year-old Brad who moved out here, 27, going on 20, something like, around there. Pup Brad, pup Brad. But this was a different experience for me. For some reason, I thought, I don't, I don't want to, I, I, I want to sit in the back. And uh, sometimes I would just sit on my bum during worship. I didn't even stand up. It just felt right for whatever reason. And it was different. But a funny thing happened. For some reason, that year, I experienced more of the actual presence of the Holy Spirit than I had in over a decade. Every single worship time, it was like light bulbs were going off. I'd be sitting in the back, you know, in the, those conference settings, they often will have you come down to the front, and that's where people will pray for you. I was sitting in the back, and people were coming up to me, saying, I just got to pray for you. People I knew and people I didn't know. 
And the one thing that, was, that I remember most clearly about that conference was at some point during one of the worship times when I was in the back, I may have actually been standing at this point, but I remember uh, I just had this realization. You know, what I believed about who Jesus was when I was 28, I still believe now at 40-something. In a different way. But it's real, it's true, it's powerful, it's different. I still believe all this. That's why I remember going through my head. And this, I knew, had a sense it was going to be the last conference I ever attended in that association. I just knew. And I hoped that it wasn't. But I just had the sense. I knew we'd be faced with a choice to stay or go. And sure enough, by the end of that summer, we were being asked to choose. Things were changing. But just as God was with me in the back of the auditorium... I sensed he would be with us as we chose to leave. And for me and Becca, it was a painful move and very personal. Speaking for myself, I lost friends. The key mentor in my life disowned me. I felt weak. And if the story of my faith was a story for winners, protected from pain, if the expectation I had for myself was perfection and strength, if the God I served had no scars, I wouldn't be following Jesus today. The resurrection shows me that weakness and loss are part of the expectations of a life of faith. And as a result, I can have peace, I can live with hope, and I can experience grace because my God suffered in weakness, saw the redemption of his pain, and carries the scars to proclaim to the whole world, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The faith of Jesus, it's really different. I mean, if you think about it, in just these three things that I shared, a God who commits to us before we commit to him, that's the story of the cross. I haven't seen that. At, you know, there's a lot I have to learn. 15 years sounds like a long time, and whatever I did before that, I, don't, I haven't learned everything about every religion in the world, but I haven't found that anywhere else. God, who came to, be serve, came to serve and not to be served, I haven't found that anywhere else. Most perspectives that have a God, you he wants you to serve him. And it's always him, almost. <laughs> this God, Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And then this God lived a life that actually reflects the real experience of life. With all of its beauty and all of its heartache, and he overcame it all. It fits my experience. 
Jesus is different. And that's why, like, 15 years in, I still believe it's all true. My experience rings true. Even my continuing experience of weakness. And it all communicates his love. That's why I still believe in Jesus. That's why I never get tired of the resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, fill this room with your presence. I pray that you would show yourself as alive to every person in this room in some way that is meaningful and powerful to them. That you would come alongside them and communicate that you came to serve not to be served. And that your grace works through our weakness. And let that begin to bring a deeper level of trust to all of our hearts. Amen.